Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM. This is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Every year, thousands of families flock to the beautiful shores of Ocean City, New Jersey, a city rich with a string of beaches and a boardwalk with a plethora of shops and amusement parks. Among the quaint neighborhoods in the quiet town is the West Side, known as home to the resort's African-American population. We'll talk with the author of The West Side, Ocean City in True Color to uncover some myths, truths, and surprising revelations. Segregated beaches were just the way it was. Jared A. Howard searches a city to bring you inspiring stories of interesting people. I am doing this to build a legacy for everybody who sounds a little different, looks a little different, but must have a voice. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We're here with Loretta Thompson-Harris, who is author of the book, The West Side, Ocean City in True Color. We are actually in the home of Loretta's grandparents here in Ocean City on what's called The West Side, and we'll learn more about that. Along with Loretta Thompson-Harris are members of her family. We've got brothers, sisters, cousins, pretty much, here with us, and friends, and we will talk with everybody and learn their experiences. And I have to say, I learned about Loretta Thomas-Harris's experience experiences here in Ocean City uh, from reading a um, article in The Inquirer. And I have to thank the writer of that article because it really piqued my interest because uh, my husband and family, we come here every year in second season to Ocean City to spend time. This is our favorite uh, shore town to visit. So uh, thank you so much for writing this book. Loretta, tell me about why you wrote this particular book, The West Side, Ocean City in True Color. Well, I grew up here on the west side and noticed over the years that the black population was dwindling year after year after year. uh, We were having fewer people. And as I was actually researching for my family tree, I found that many people had moved away. They go off to school and just don't come back. So I felt that if we didn't get our presence, existence documented, we would all be gone and nothing would say that we were ever here. In doing the research for this book, and you can tell me, you know, how much research it took to uh, put this together, um, perhaps you can share what some of the more surprising things that you found about Ocean City uh, and African-Americans in Ocean City while you were doing your research. Well, I think the most surprising thing I found was that very few people really knew their family history. I know I didn't know mine, and as I talked to other people, they really didn't know their family history either. 
and they were anxious, you know, to learn that history. So as I was working, I would include other people on my tree, do the research, and then share that information with them. And it was always, you know, quite enlightening. They were happy to know how they fit in here in Ocean City. Describe to me the West Side. What was the West Side like uh, when you were growing up as a little girl here and, and compare it to what it's like now? Well, the West Side was a very close uh, community of people of color. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone looked out for one another. There were lots of little businesses here in town, and they all supported each other in order to make a go of it. I definitely want to hear more about the businesses that were established in Ocean City and West Side early on. But first, I would like to hear more from your family members and yourself. And I'll start with you to talk about your experiences growing up in Ocean City. What was it like as a young girl growing up in Ocean City? Well, growing up in Ocean City was fun because it is such a small place. You knew everyone. It was safe so we could come and go. We had uh, defined boundaries as to how far we could go. But we were basically free to come and go. We could go to the beach and boardwalk every day. We could go to the bay, to Crab. Um, We had friends who lived, you know, just blocks away. School was close. We always walked to school. There were no buses. So you got to know everyone, play with everyone, and just basically have a good time as youngsters here. My name is Emma Davis. And I'm a friend of Loretta's. I came to Ocean City at the age of 17, out of high school, and I came to work. My high school principal was uh, responsible for sending me to Ocean City for a summer job. And from the summer job, I went back to college, A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina. I also met my future husband in 1957 when I came here. And uh, we were married five years later. But I found Ocean City to be a very interesting place because it was a northern state. But I thought it was more southern than where I came from in different ways, especially when it came to uh, segregation. Now, if you can get into that a little bit more, explain to me what you mean by that. How is Ocean City a little bit more southern than the south where you were originally from? Well, I thought that the people of color were restricted quite a bit, even though perhaps they didn't think so, but I thought so. Coming from the South and knowing what uh, segregation was, I compared with what I had gone through, what I had experienced with what was happening in Ocean City. And there were so many things going on that were closely related, such as sitting in the balcony of the theater, segregated beach, no black educators, and other things, various things that uh, I thought. Now, Loretta, I know that you also tell a story of something that you experienced at a segregated beach when you were a young girl in Ocean City. Can you share some of those stories? Well, segregated beaches were just the way it was, and we never gave it much thought as children. It was only after we were grown and looked back that we realized just how segregated it was. As kids, we all gathered on our one beach between 5th and 6th Street. We had a great time. We had our own lifeguards. 
Uh, our beach was always rougher than the adjacent beach to the north. So every now and then we would climb over the jetty and go for a nice swim, but we would get chased back. We thought it was funny. So we laughed and kept going back and forth. And eventually the lifeguard would threaten us with expulsion from the beach for the day if we didn't stay on our own beach. But again, we really didn't realize how serious it was as children. My name is Alva Thompson, and I'm the sister of Loretta Thompson. Oh, I agree with my sister about the beaches. Um, I never knew that the beach was set aside for us. I always went every day because my brothers were lifeguards, and I had to take lunch to them every day. But I never knew that we were not permitted to go on the other beaches. I did understand we weren't allowed on the boardwalk. We could go as far as Johnson's Popcorn and get popcorn, but then we had to run back to our place on the beach. They used to chase us back. I loved growing up here because we were a close family. Everyone got along. We were just all one community, and everyone was very close. My name is Nathan Davis, and I'm a friend of uh, Loretta and also of her brothers. We grew up together. Now, I graduated from high school here in 1955. In terms of being segregated against, you found that quite often. But when you grow up, you kind of get a knowledge and a feel don't go here because you're going to have a problem. You're going to get into a fuss. You're going to get into a fight. And my dad was tough on me. Go where you can go. Do what you're supposed to do. And if they don't treat you right, you come back and tell me. And then you and I will go back for this situation. Now, with regard to the beach, uh, one thing I used to do as a kid, you could do soda bottles and take them back up to the uh, boardwalk, and you get money. Oh. Now, I would leave the black beach, and I'd go to the white beach, and I'd be picking up these bottles. But you had to watch yourself, because sometimes they would get little wise over there. They never hurt you physically. But if they had a dog, uh, and you were picking up these bottles, they would let that dog go. Now, the dog's not going to bother you. But when you look around and see that dog coming at you like that, you get a little shook. Now, later on in life, my first one of my first jobs was working on the boardwalk. And uh, I didn't have any problems with the people on the boardwalk. They would come to you and speak to you. But the only big thing that you had to worry about was that beach. But going through life, if you're black, you ran into some type of segregation. But then again, it got a little bit better year 
after year. But you could also see here in Ocean City and in other towns, when it comes to property, buying houses, etc., etc., you were located in one area of the house and the white people lived in another area of the house, the city, you know. But you had to watch yourself because if you did something that you were not supposed to do, it wasn't what you're not supposed to do. If you did something that you were black, then you were attacked verbally. But on a whole, hey, I grew up, I went to college, I made a living after, I'm, I'm cool with it, you know, with myself, I'll put it that way. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. You know, with all those stories of segregation and the mistreatment of African Americans in Ocean City, it's good to know that things started to improve. Um, but I start to think of, you know, how difficult it must have been to establish businesses uh, back then. But I do know that it happened, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first saltwater taffy business was established by uh, an African-American gentleman in Ocean City. Loretta, if you could tell this story about Mr. Still. I went all the way back to the beginning, the founding of Ocean City, and tried to determine um, when the first people of color came, where they came from. And I found uh, Jacob Still, his wife, and his son in the 1885 census, and they had uh, come to Ocean City from Burlington County. In further research, I found that Jacob Still owned a saltwater taffy shop on the boardwalk. And for a person of color to have a saltwater taffy shop on the boardwalk, the first in the city, back in those days was quite an accomplishment. And he was just one of many people who had businesses here in the city. When did the Still family arrive? And um, I know there's some questions about that saltwater taffy recipe as far as where it is today. <laughs> the Stills arrived in Ocean City in 1884. And we know that from a, a very long obituary that they put in the paper uh, when he died, when Jacob Still died in 1901. It was especially long for a person of color. But it gave the year that he came and the fact that he was instrumental in starting one of our first uh, black churches here in town. Now, um, there is controversy within his family as to what happened with the taffy recipe. Some people say he sold it on his deathbed. Others say it was stolen. And we don't quite know the answer to that yet. So when people come to Ocean City, the saltwater taffy that they buy, some of it could be from Mr. Still's recipe, or we just don't know? Well, I'd like to think so. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, talk about more about your family. I know that uh, I think it was either your father or your grandfather built one of the fishing piers in Ocean City? Yeah, my father uh, was in marine construction, and after the 1962 storm there was no more fishing pier at 14th Street. Uh, the storm had totally wiped that uh, fishing pier out, and he was hired to design and build the fishing pier that you see there today. 
someone mentioned religion earlier, I believe, or a church. And um, from what I understand, a lot of the black settlers coming to Ocean City came here for religious reasons. Can you tell me more about that? Well, it's my conclusion that many of the early people of color who came to Ocean City came here for religious reasons. If you look at the four original black churches, um, they all have congregations from basically different sections of the country. Macedonia was the first church. It broke off from the Methodist Church back in 1893. And a lot of uh, those people were from the eastern shore of Maryland. The second church was Tabernacle Baptist Church, and that was actually founded by a group of uh, people from the Germantown section of Philadelphia, all very religious people, two pastors and a caterer. The third church would have been St. James AME, and actually my great-grandfather was one of the founders of that church. There were six or seven in that group. And as I traced things back, I found that all of the group had come through Salem County or nearby Cumberland County. They were all middle-aged men when they arrived here in Ocean City, and they started that church within a few years of their arrival. So that just leads me to believe that, you know, they came here on a mission. And the last church was uh, Shiloh Baptist, which has a connection to the house we're in here today. It was founded back in 1912. Now, all four churches have been here over 100 years, and all are still operating today. Loretta, talk about the importance of the work that you're doing. I know this is the first of three uh, books that you're going to be writing. Why is it so important to gather information, gather uh, history, and tell our stories? I think we all need to know who we are, where we came from, and how we fit into the big picture. If we don't have a firm sense of self, I think we're less as people and perhaps not as nice to other people because we don't know their story either. And if we don't uh, document the history as we know it today, there's nothing for the next generation. Let's talk about Ocean City today. What are some of the changes that you've seen over the years in Ocean City, for the good, for the worse, in terms of uh, African-American community in Ocean City? Okay. The overall population of the city is smaller than it was in years past. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I see the housing market changing. We used to have lots of cute little bungalows with lots of character. Uh, we seem to be moving toward the McMansions, some people like to call them. And that sort of uh, prices out most people of color because they simply can't come in and pay a million dollars for a second home. And a lot of the uh, homes that are being bought today are being bought by people as second homes. And if someone were to come to Ocean City and want to learn more about uh, African-American influences here in Ocean City, what are some areas and points of interest that they should visit? They can go to the library or the historical museum and find out the different points of interest that are here. 
And finally, like I said, I know that you're working on two other um, books about Ocean City. Um, what is it that you would want a reader to get from this book after they read it? What is it that you want them to hold on to? Well, first of all, I want them to know that we were here. If we don't document this history, they will not know it. And then I want them to know that uh, we made major contributions to this community. Uh, I've tallied up over 200 different little businesses that were in existence over the years. So we had many entrepreneurs in the mix, and I think they were the backbone of this community. There's one thing I did want to ask you about, Loretta, and that is Widow's Row. Can you explain and talk more about what Widow's Row is? I actually grew up on Widow's Row. Widow's Row was 11 row houses on Haven Avenue between 6th Street and 7th Street. And I think the name is really a term of endearment. There were many widows who lived in those homes over the years because it was something that they could afford. And by 1950, eight of the 11 homes were occupied by widows. Loretta, thank you so much. And thank you to all your friends and family for being here and allowing us to come into this very lovely home. I do appreciate the time. And, of course, the book is called The West Side, Ocean City in True Color, written by Loretta Thompson-Harris. Pick it up. It's got lots of nuggets of history of African-American history right here in Ocean City. Loretta, family and friends, thank you so much today. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. If it's happening in Philadelphia, Shara Day Howard knows all about it. Here's the latest, Shara in the City. Nina Ahmad is poised to make history after winning one of five Democratic nominations for at-large seats on City Council this past May. Originally from Bangladesh, she's now also on track to becoming the first South Asian and first immigrant in recent memory to hold a seat in the legislature. She says the road to this moment has been long and not without its struggles, but more than anything, she's thankful. So we paid Nina Ahmad a visit to learn what's at the heart of all that gratitude. I am deeply grateful to Philadelphia for giving me this opportunity because Philadelphia has been good to me. To have someone like me who has no coattails, who comes as an immigrant to this city from a tiny little country called Bangladesh, which is part of South Asia, uh, to have representation because it does matter to bring your lived experience to the table. People see themselves in you. So I am doing this to build a legacy for everybody who sounds a little different, looks a little different, but must have a voice. And I'm hopefully showing people that path. This is, was a landmark election. Women, women everywhere. <laughs> this really means a completely different future for Philadelphia, or it could. Absolutely. And I think we have going to have a majority council of women. Uh, we have our male um, colleagues as well. But I think women uniquely bring a lived experience of having been somewhat left behind in many spaces. Uh, so we bring that awareness and that empathy to know many in Philadelphia have been left behind. 
and uh, we continue to be called one of the poorest, largest cities in the country. We're the sixth largest city in the country, and we have to change that. We have to make sure there's opportunity for everyone. And I think uh, many of us who are going to be at that table have had some experience of being shut out. And so we bring that experience and opening doors for people. It's important. It's like you've changed the conversation. The community conversation is now led by women who really have been at the forefront of so many of these fights. And now change may come, especially when it comes to gun violence and a lot of things that our communities are seeing. Of course, education and all of these things are interconnected. Absolutely. I am here because at this point in time to be sitting to be potentially one of the next council members at large is because of education. You know, I came with literally nothing in my pockets and here I am sitting, having served President Obama on a commission, been a deputy mayor in the city, leading the National Organization for Women, the Pennsylvania chapter. All of these things, I pinch myself. Um, and it's because there's two things, I think. One is getting access to education. Two is when you come as an immigrant, you don't have a lifeline anyway. There's no safety net. You have to uh, survive. You have to thrive. And um, I just want to look at those barriers that present themselves to many who have lived here generations and uh, yet are held back. So I want to dismantle those. Right. This is about everybody. This is a community effort. Absolutely. You know, when we serve on council, that should be a community effort. We should have a collegial framework where we have some kind of a strategic plan. We all are going to have different lanes. I understand that. We have different passions. But we also must learn how we're going to work together to move Philadelphia forward from all our different lanes. And, uh, you know, when we think about the pressing issues in front of us, those are no-brainers for all of us to agree on. Um, we have to figure out the methods of getting there. But I think we all understand what values are important to lift up all Philadelphians. Indeed. So let's talk about your lane. What is your lane and how do you interpret it? And what are your, I guess, what are your plans? What are your tools? So um, it's evolving as we speak. There's going to be much more concrete uh, themes that I'm going to put forward as the months go on. But where I'm coming from is understanding that many of our issues in Philadelphia are health issues. And when we think about the trauma we're feeling from gun violence and violence in general, whether you're a perpetrator, you're feeling violence. Whether you're victimized by it, you're feeling and traumatized by the violence. Whether you're a bystander, you are feeling a trauma as well. I lived through a war, so I recognize this trauma in people and the fear, particularly in children's eyes, when they don't know whether you know going to school is dangerous for them, whether they're going to something's going to happen in school, and adults are not intervening at the right time, and it is escalating. Mm -hmm. These are the things I've been talking to children, and I've been talking to young people who've told me so. Violence is something we need to address, and I think we have to attach mental health care to that. Cognitive behavioral therapy is critical. I am a huge proponent of engaging our mental health community to allow our children to de-escalate themselves from this fight or flight kind of framework they're operating from. We cannot make decisions when we are so fearful. And uh, so I think 
we have to look, I'm going to look at the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disabilities to see what resources we can bring to the table at school. And it's not just for young people, it's for adults as well. And um, how we deploy those, how we find where are the hotspots and where do we put that resource in place. But we also have to look at why do we have all these guns on the street? That has nothing to do with mental health. That's a corporate decision. And somebody's making money off of every time we have a shooting and somebody is dying or somebody is impacted. So we need to look at that very carefully, that how is it we can't tamp down that? What is holding us back? I know city of Philadelphia can't make our own rules. So we have to look at what tools do we have? What laws are on the books? Are they being used? What is the accountability of all the law enforcement agencies that are working together to make sure that we are making those tools unavailable when you're about to make a bad decision. So while we're helping them calm down from not making a bad decision, let's also not have tools that while they're in that frame of mind, they can make a poor decision and really cost someone's life. So how do we incorporate the entire family in this mental health journey? In the school setting for the younger children, I think community schools are a great tool. You know, when I was deputy mayor in the city uh, in the first term of Jim Kenney, that's when the whole community school model was deployed. And it's actually very successful. It's just there's not enough of them. So when you have a small class size where the teacher knows you, understands where you're coming from, has the mental health support, the nurse support, the libraries, the games, the arts, when you have that whole uh, package to address a child, then you can actually know where that child is in terms of how they learn and what environment they're coming from or going to. Then you can attend to that. And when you are you know, struggling to make a living, you have to work three jobs, or you yourself have a mental health disorder, or you are traumatized yourself, it is very hard to parent your children. You know, the paradigm hurt people hurt people is so real. We see it played out every day. So yes, accountability is important. People have to be held accountable for their choices, but we also have to know what were they making choices from? What did they have to make those choices? So we can't convict people before we've given them a chance. Right. So you're seeing the whole person. Yes. Absolutely. I am an example of the promise of the city. It is really true. This is why I say this is my thank you to Philadelphia. Everybody wants to have an opportunity to shine. And we have to create that level playing field for everybody to participate in. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter, at Bridging Philly, at Raquel On Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>